Hello, podcast listeners. It's Jenna, your host for the Faces of Grand Prairie podcast. Well, we're kind of in an interesting time, aren't we? I'm working on day 245 of the quarantine. Just kidding, kind of. Feels like that long. But at least the last couple of days have been sunny, so we've been able to get out and go for walks and enjoy ourselves for a bit. This whole situation slowed down my interviews, so I thought that I would put out a best of episode with excerpts from all my guests so far. I wanted everybody to know something from my heart, you guys. We're going to get through this. I promise that this isn't going to last forever, and we'll be bouncing back sooner than you think. I am so sorry if this coronavirus has led to illness or loss for you or your family, uh, the temporary loss of your livelihood. If you're losing money every day in your business, if it's caused you stress and anxiety by being home, I just wanted you all to know that every loss in this entire situation matters and it's not fair for anybody right now. I want to thank all the medical professionals, the grocery store employees, the educators, the emergency personnel, our elected officials, the truckers, and all the other men and women who are still having to go to work to make this world function right now despite all the madness. It really is my true belief that we're going to get through this quicker than we all think that we will and we'll be back on our feet stronger than ever. You just wait. There's going to be some major celebrations and partyings going on when we get out of this. In the meantime, take a listen to some of my favorite parts of the episodes we've recorded so far and you can go back and listen to any of them if you'd like to hear them in their entirety. Enjoy! From my episode with Mayor Ron Jensen. Because I've known you for for a while, and because you've always shown up, you've always shown up to anything I've ever asked you to do. Because we did National Night Out, you always come to do those things. Anytime I ever say yes, if you can, you always do. And I'm not the only person that's noticed that about you. And so I'm curious, do you have a hard time fitting everything in? I do sometimes. Yeah. Uh, I can't live without my, uh, with Gloria uh, Colvin at at, uh, City Hall. She Uh takes care of calendaring things for me right. but I, I tell her to calendar things. right she doesn't calendar anything without me approving it it's not like, it. like you wake up and you don't know what you're doing that day. right right and uh, people some people don't realize I get emails and say I, I don't know if you'll read this or not I may get a staffer response I read all my own emails mm-hmm. I respond to all my own emails mm-hmm. and I calendar things out uh, weeks ahead if I can and uh, yeah it, uh, I can testify to that because when I put this, e- I put an email out to um, you and a few other people, and I can, you were the first one to respond to me when I said, I have this idea, I think this, we want to do this. You immediately said, sure. And you were the first person to say that. And I, it wasn't, it wasn't your assistant, it was you. <laughs> I, uh, I do not like my iPhone to have red dots on it. <laughs> So you don't like all the notifications? No. I'll sit by somebody. I I sit somebody. I'm on the RTC, Regional Transportation Council, with uh, 40 mayors, judges, people from all over the Dallas-Fort Worth area. One of the mayors, I won't tell you who is, sitting next to me. I looked at his one time. He had 394 emails. I said, how do do you do that? He says, I never catch up. Well, I keep mine caught up. I mean, I'll sit in the car for... 15 minutes when I go to Starbucks I will clear out every one of my emails I got overnight while I'm at Starbucks every one of them I'll clear them out send them to somebody answer them 
do what I have to do with them. Put them in a file to do later. I have a file. Yeah. You have to have some type of system. Absolutely. I'll put in a file to hold, but text messages, they I clear those out, all of those. I clear out. You don't want to look at my phone. I don't. <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> Especially when you're on like a parent, you know, group and it's like text like group text. Oh, group, take me text. off this yeah, group. Exactly. Facebook uh the message. My gosh, I've, I've opted out of so many of those. Why am I on this? I know, like, I'm like... They add you, and then you're just getting these random stuff, and I don't even know what they're talking about, right. so I drop the group. You know? That's exactly... I know, and I'm like, I don't want to know any of this. This has nothing to do with me, but I mean... <laughs> yeah, it's nothing to do with me. From an episode with Grand Prairie Chamber of Commerce President Michelle Madden. So a couple of personal questions, okay. because I'm very interested. You were a business owner, really as a realtor, mm -hmm. that's what you are as a business owner, before you became the president. Mm -hmm. So like, what are some of the business owner lessons that you learned while you were running your business? Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Um, really keep a tight handle on your finances, mm. especially in the world of real estate, but any it could apply to anybody. You know, you start picking stuff up and, um, between that and making sure you track your miles, if you're putting miles yeah. on your car, you got to do all those things. You have to be really responsible about that. Um, making wise decisions on your marketing choices too. Oh yeah, I made a big investment, and we currently now are doing something great at the chamber um, that I wish I'd had the opportunity of back then. I do I, tell. I paid for um, time on a movie screen at one of our major movie theaters down. <gasps> yeah, really? I had a commercial that ran for a year on on the screen and it was quite an investment but I thought you know what go big or go home right um, but now at the chamber we are also offering um, a, a slot on a digital billboard for a fraction of the cost that we did that I spent on that movie theater thing right so we're bringing opportunity to members who would not be able to get on a billboard otherwise right so right those are the things I mean really managing your money probably managing my time a little bit better, uh, but yeah. it's hard in the in the world of real estate. Just in general, you know, you're in your car a lot, and there's not yeah. a lot you can do. But you you were very involved, even as a business owner. Like you were involved in uh, doing other. You were involved in Rotary. You were involved right. in all that stuff. So like, that has helped you tremendously. I would imagine I doing what so. you do now. Yeah, um, and really honestly, maybe not so much from building my business, but part of my business is being able to communicate. And I think mm -hmm. that giving yourself exposure and as many opportunities as you can to publicly speak, whether it's really with three people or 30 people. Oh my goodness, um, yes. It makes it so much better and makes situations even like this right here with you yes. so much easier. And I consider public speaking now, not that I'm great at it, but I consider it more of a challenge and not a fear. From my episode with Mayor Pro Tem and City Councilman Jeff Copeland. I was at just the Grand Prairie Women's Club because my mom and you know my mom and she she raised me to be service oriented my whole life and and to be involved in different deals so why I was even there I don't know but but I love the Grand Prairie Women's Club because uh, I believe it takes a village to raise our children mm -hmm. and that's kind of the village that raised me mm -hmm. because those are my teachers I was and gonna principals say and, and and people that that know you and, and I think it's wonderful that that they knew Jeff at 17 or 18, mm -hmm. and I probably wasn't the most shiniest example of students, but they they let me be me and they mm -hmm. let me grow up. And, and today, you know, after this auction, there's five or six of my former teachers here. Mm -hmm. And for them to come up and say they're proud of me, it's really good. So we're at the deal. Their auctioneer didn't show up, and uh, Barbara Kerr comes up to me and says, 
hey Jeff, our auctioneer's not here. We need you to be the auctioneer. And I said, well, I'm not an auctioneer. And Barbara Kerr says, you're the most biggest loud mouth I know. How hard can it be? That's Barbara, right? And I said, okay, I'll give it a whirl. And I got up and I did it and I just did whatever and, and made people laugh and had a good time. And uh, that, that was it. And about two weeks later, somebody called and said, hey, we'd love for you to be our auctioneer. And I'm like, hey, I'm not, not, not an auctioneer. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so they said, come do it. And, and I said, all right. And, and uh, so I started doing like maybe four auctions a year. And literally, I remember people calling me on a Tuesday night and saying, hey, can you come do our auction Saturday? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yeah, okay, that's fine. If it'll help, because it was always charity events, pack deals. Because at the like time, that. weren't you about to have a kid in college? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, and it was just it, so I just did it, and then and then uh, and then it got it kind of got to where I was doing like one a month, and it was getting a little overwhelming. And Melanie and I, we do a lot of praying on our patio, and we're sitting out on our patio, and said, you know, this is now starting to 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 take time and to do some mm. things. And we said, yeah, but we're working with charity. So we just started using it as our date night because it's always mm -hmm. a gala and you dress up and you meet local celebrities or whatnot. And we just said, it'll be our date night. So we did it as date night for a long time. And were you only doing Grand Prairie or were no, you doing it was, around? It was, I yeah. was just, you know, because when you do one auction, it leads to two or three more right. because there's always somebody there. If you do a good job, there's always somebody saying, hey, we there's want to There's at least five here. other directors of some yeah, nonprofit exactly. that's, that's there that's like, wait a second. Absolutely. Yep. And so then we started, you know, then it starts getting more and more. Now I'm maybe doing 20 or something, and we get back on the patio and we say, hey, uh, uh, you know, this is getting to be too much now. And we mm. tried to date night it, and that's interfering with the family. And, and we just said, okay, well, we're going to have to start charging. And the only reason we wanted to charge was so that people wouldn't use me. To filter. We didn't want <laughs> the money. We just wanted people to say, oh, well, never mind. And, uh, and so, so you didn't have to be the bad guy. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> oh, well. uh, so we decided that, that, that I would continue to do auctions for whoever I've done it for. But when new groups called, I was just going to say I'm full. The very next day, a big church out in Cedar Hill that has a K through 12 school that I've never met in my life. They just called and said, hey, we've heard about you, and would you please come do our auction? I said, all right, God, we just had a conversation last mm -hmm. night that we're not gonna do this anymore. Now you got a church, so I told them <clears> I'd do <throat> it. And they had hired a consultant who does this on a national basis, and the guy does like 250 auctions a year. And he was just a godly man, and he was there, and we were visiting, and I, I told him, I said, I would love your critique on all of this. And he said, yeah, sure. And I'm sure he expected me to get up and kind of fail. And, uh, I got up and I did it and it was one of those auctions where the energy was right and the people gave me a standing ovation and when I got back to the table to the guy that does it professionally, he's like, oh my gosh, you're the best I've ever heard. You've got to start doing this professionally. Mm. And I said, hey, listen, man, I'm not criticizing how you make your living, <laughs> but I just don't know how you, I don't know how you charge churches and charities. And he said something that set me free. He right. said, Jeff, he said, I'm using my kingdom gifts to get money out of the secular world into the kingdom world. Mm -hmm. And I said, amen, brother, because <laughs> I'm going to start charging now. Well, Perspective. So, yeah, so, so now I'm going to charge, but I'm really only charging so that they'll say, never mind, in this uh, hospital, this big hospital out in East Texas that I'd done their auctions for years, for like three years, uh, I would drive three hours out to their event, mm -hmm. do their event, not charge a dime. They called and said, hey, we're ready to book you. 
and I hem hauled around and I said, oh, I'm, I'm man, I, I, and they go, well, what? And I said, well, I'm, I'm charging now. Mm. And they said, how much? And I think back then it was like a thousand bucks. And I said, a thousand dollars? And, and God just shined through because they said the greatest thing, literally they could have said, they said, that is fine with us, Jeff. We've been taking advantage of you for years. I was going to say, I bet they felt like they'd gotten a really good gift for a while. And so that just set me free. And, and so we talked to the kids and, and, uh, and we said, hey, daddy's going to start charging now. So if somebody needs me, I have to go. Maybe I have to miss a dance recital. And the kids mm-hmm. are like, and we made a deal. It's always going to be family fun money, whether it's buying four-wheelers or going on vacations. And so we kept it family-oriented. And it just started growing and growing mm-hmm. and growing and more from there. So I kept going up and up and up and on the price, trying to keep people, you know, from to say no and people just kept paying the price because at this time you were charging but you were still keeping grand prairie grand any prairie, grand prairie stuff. is all right. free thank right. you for saying yeah that. i don't uh uh when i i'd always done grand prairie uh when i started charging i originally said i'll do grand prairie for half price mm-hmm. and that's children first and lifeline and pretty much anybody in grand prairie there's three or four grand prairie united charities and they gladly wrote me a check, and, and I'm going to tell you, I cashed the check and I spent the money, but it just didn't set well with mm. me. I just said, man, I'm, 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 I'm a son of Grand Prairie, yeah. and so uh, I just decided I'm just going to do the Grand Prairie Charities for free. And then especially That's kind of your that, service in a different amen. way. That's my yeah, service. Right. That's me giving <clears throat> back to my community, which is really how all this got started. Right. And 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 the really the cool thing about the auctions is is it blew up, and now I'm doing sixty or so a year, and I'm charging a lot more than a thousand dollars, and it's been a real financial blessing to our family. And I've along the way went and became a licensed auctioneer mm-hmm. because when you start charging, you got to get licensed and and do a lot of different things and continuing education. But uh, I was sitting on my patio one day, and this is, this is the greatest part of the story. And I was out there by myself, and, and Jenna, just as plain as you and I are sitting here right now, Jesus sat down beside me. I've told this story 20 times, but I mm-hmm. get emotional every time. But he sat down right beside me, and he said, Hey, man, because Jesus and I have a casual conversation. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, yeah. If you need to put a three-piece suit on to go to your father's house, I appreciate that. But I can go to my father's house in shorts and flip-flops. And Jesus said, hey, man, you see what I did? And I said, no, I, I, I don't know. Mm. And uh, Jesus said, I took the worst thing about you, mm. which was my tongue, mm-hmm. and made it the greatest thing about you. Mm-hmm. And, and along the way, we've raised millions of dollars for mm-hmm. people that need it. And when I say my tongue was the worst thing about me, when I was growing up, and, and people that know me from when I was growing up and at South Grand Prairie, I was the student body president. I was still already in leadership roles, but I can look back now and see how much I led people in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and my tongue was very, very, very sharp. You know, the Bible says the tongue's the biggest muscle in yep. your body and it can do more damage than anything. That's right. And I had a sharp tongue and I would, I would make people laugh at you so that you wouldn't be laughing at me. Mm. And I just did tremendous damage with my tongue through humor, not knowing. And now through these auctions, I use the same humor, the Mm. same humor that that God gave me. And now Jesus has refined to where I have some clients, and I try to put it on a business card, but some of my clients call me an auction tainer 
because you see me do it. It's as much as a stand-up comedy routine True. as it is an auction. Yep. So I'm making people laugh, and and and, but he he took my tongue and took my personality that he gave me that I had misused on my own. Uh, I came, you know, I, I uh, right here at South Park Baptist Church, just right next door to what was Jackson at the time, but now it's the Jackson uh, mm -hmm. South Ninth Grade Center. Mm -hmm. That's where I was baptized in the seventh grade, and. And I know I had a relationship with Christ, but I wasn't on a walk. Right. Through. Once I got to high school, the devil said, let me show you some of these fun things over here. And then when I got to college, the devil said, boy, I really got some things I want to show you. And luckily for me, I still had Melanie in my life, mm -hmm. and that kept me grounded. But my tongue did a lot of damage. And yeah. so now when Jesus said, you see what I did? And even then I said, no, Lord, I don't. And then when he told me, I went, oh, wow, because literally every time right before I walk on stage and I go back somewhere and I do it privately, I always pray, mm -hmm. Lord, can I have the gift one more time? Because I have no idea how spiritual gifts work, but I know for certain that me being able to do these auctions is a spiritual gift. Mm -hmm. I don't know how they work, but if they work, that with one of these days, if I walk up on stage and I can't say a word, if I, if I freeze up and I can't auction anymore, I'm just going to say thank you, Lord, for mm -hmm. the times that you gave me. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to regret, you know, I'm just going to be thankful for what he had. And, and as soon as mm -hmm. I get off the stage, I, I say a prayer of thanks. And, you know, to this day, there's so much turmoil in our world. And whether you watch CNN or whether you watch mm -hmm. Fox, if you're brave enough to ask people, we're, we're all the same. And, oh, yeah. and, and for me, I get to work with so many charities and do, I mean, whether it's Ronald McDonald House or Make-A-Wish, because now God continues to bless my auctioneer business to where I'm doing big, giant national groups. And, and I remember... You just did the Cattle Barons auction. Yeah, I did the Cattle yeah. Barons Ball for the American Cancer Society. And I mean, doing auctions that were going over a million dollars mm -hmm. for and... and, and and I tell you, boy, if you want if you want to see a six foot four, three hundred pound guy cry, come out to the Ronald McDonald House mm. and the Make a Wish auctions, because I can't get through them. From my episode with GPISD Deputy Superintendent of Student Services, Dr. Vern Alexander. So after you graduated college, then where did you go? I I was drafted into the military. It was oh. during the Vietnam War. Oh my gosh! And I was stationed in. Uh, Fort Bragg, uh, North Carolina, mm -hmm. and I uh, stayed there until uh, I received my orders for Vietnam, yes, and uh, I served in Vietnam for a year, and I certainly, and I'm going to say, I enjoyed my assignment. I was the, I, I, I say, I always say I was the right-hand man of the battalion commander. He was a lieutenant colonel, and he and I had an excellent relationship. I was the only person in the battalion that could type a letter without making a single mistake. Oh. So he he wanted me uh, to be in the office with him so I could take care of his communication during that particular time. I did not have to be on guard duty out, but I volunteered to go out anyway. Which is Isn't it funny how our skill sets sometimes can come in really handy for different reasons? They, <laughs> <laughs> it certainly it certainly did. I never realized when I was taking typing in high school, 
uh, you know, I went I went to um, Dalworth High School, mm -hmm. and I never thought that I would be using that skill in uh, in the in a war zone. No, not yes. at all. I wouldn't even guess that that would be something. But you're, but yeah. it makes sense why it would be nice to, to yeah. know that. It, it was nice. I, I was very fortunate. I received uh, the Vietnamese Service Medal, the Army Accommodation, and the Bronze Star while wow. I was in in. Uh, so I, I just was, want to comment that among the history that I knew Dr. Alexander had and, mm -hmm. and could share with us, none of it included a military career. Me neither. <laughs> I did not know that. So Is that right? Yes, that. definitely. Thank you. I appreciate wow. that. Appreciate that. So after you got out of there, did what? Where did you go from that point? I came home, uh -huh. uh, and I, I would say uh, the. The veterans from Vietnam was not re welcomed home and received very well in the public. Mm. And uh, unfortunately, it was very difficult for a lot of us returning veterans to uh, find employment. And so um, with the, um, the, uh, the GI Bill, I decided to go, to, go, to, go back to college, mm -hmm. so I went to uh, North Texas State University mm -hmm. and majored in history again in uh -huh. political and political science and uh, I received my master's degree from there mm -hmm. uh, in 19 I believe it was uh, oh, what was it I believe it was 1976 that I received my uh, bachelor's degree mm -hmm. again I had an outstanding professor his um, his major interest was southern history and so I, yeah i learned a great wow. deal uh, under his leadership and uh, enjoyed that experience as well wow. i often say that my two years in vietnam and my i say my two years in the military was just as valuable as my four years of undergraduate graduate work i was going to ask you um because i would i would imagine you seem like the type of person that takes all of your experiences internally to figure out how you're going to use it. So I would imagine that anywhere you're gonna be, you're gonna be one of those type of people that finds value in how to use it in your regular life. Yes, I, I, uh, I think that all of my experiences have helped me to be right. a good person, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, and I think that was always the goal is to try to be a better person. I told my wife, even this year, I said, honey, my New Year's resolution is to be a better person, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's always uh, good to work on self-improvement. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, when I did my dissertation, I, include a, I included a chapter about uh, Vietnam because I had promised my uh, fellow soldiers that I would do that, and I made it a part of my dissertation. Uh, wow. For my, for my master's degree. From my episode with Tammy Chan with the Grand Prairie Homeless Outreach Organization. We have a different model. We'll tap into housing first when appropriate, but our model is called community first. And what that says is we're never going to be able to put in affordable housing for homeless if our community doesn't understand homelessness. Right. If they're rejected. Exactly. It's going to be not in my backyard, baby. Right. You're not building a halfway house or yes, affordable housing for the homeless here. Uh-uh, they're criminals. Mm -hmm. So 
with the Community First initiative, our spin on it is, let's introduce the community to our homeless and let's tap into that belief community, the faith-based community who's called mm -hmm. to serve them. Whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. Absolutely. And so how do we introduce the homeless to the community in a safe way so that uh, it's meaningful and does what we need to? Well, we've got a need. Maybe the community can help meet that need, and that's food, hunger. Right. Hunger's our top issue. Mm -hmm. So we're like, well, we need the community's help to feed the homeless. So why don't we just make that the opportunity? This is something we didn't think of. It just happened. I feel like the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. kind of pulled it together. But basically, I put out on Facebook that food is our number one issue, and if anybody has any you know, coupons or access. And I got a contact from a woman from Colleyville mm -hmm. who's from India. Her name is Harveen Kaur. She's one of the followers. And she said, you know, in India, we have millions of hungry people, lot are homeless. Here's what they've started in India that's making an impact. They have a young people, young business people who are forming clubs mm. called Robin Hood Army Clubs. And the thought is take from the rich and give to the poor. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not taking, they're offering. And so they form a club and they adopt a neighborhood and they get together and cook and have fellowship and then they take the food to the neighborhood. Um. And they've been doing this for several years and what they found is they fell in love with the neighborhood people. Right. So it's evolved to, wow, this neighborhood has 100 people and while the moms are waiting, the kids are, let's do a little program for the kids mm -hmm. and keep them busy and there's some healthcare issues. So they, they've grown, some do straight food, some do more. And uh, she, she said, why don't you see if you can get some Robin Hood Army teams launched with young adults or seniors or whatever. I'm like, man, that's kind of like a spin on Wheels on Wheels. Right. So, so we approached Meals on Wheels. Okay. You know, we thought, let's, let's try that first. And Meals on Wheels was like perplexed by our request because how do you deliver to someone who doesn't have an address? Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. So that did not work. <laughs> and so... Uh, we continued with the Robin Hood Army idea and started posting it, and we started getting a few core people who uh, said, "Well, let me let me try a lasagna," and and they got in the car with me and they went around and and they met our people and they're like, "That homelessness is not what I thought." Right. Homeless people in Grand Prairie are sweet. Most of them, they're they're trapped. They need our help. What else can I do? Oh, I brought baby clothes for mm -hmm. her. I, you know. It's just God connecting people. It's creating a sense of empathy, and that's what you have to have, is you've got to start getting empathy awareness of understanding what a person has gone through in their life. And I would imagine, there, I've seen this in action because one of the reasons I decided to be here at First Baptist is because I know um, people like Debbie, Debbie Johnson, and people like that have made it a point to try to be a part of this food train, if you will. I don't know what else to call it, where, where they get food together and they go deliver it. And um, But I would imagine that you kind of mentioned something earlier about homeless uh, people walking on the street and being aware that they're, they don't want to get in other people's way. So I would imagine that when you can create a sense of community where they see that the community wants to help them, do you feel like 
because I, I can imagine it would be so isolating to be in a homeless situation. Do you feel like just the face-to-face -face interaction between that just kind of creates a sense of we care about you personally? Like it, it maybe it kind of brings those walls down or something. Absolutely. That's, I mean, that's I what's know. happening is as our community gets to know their names, right, and their stories and cares. From an episode with Dr. Rhonda Brown Crowder. You're very involved in the community. Mm -hmm. Were you always like that, or did that kind of happen? I think it just it, it kind of happened gradually over the years, and it wasn't so much that I set out to say um, I want to be involved in the community, but um, as Caleb has gotten older, I have I have I've had to become more involved because I want to do everything I can to help to, as I said, to make life better for my son and to best mm -hmm. prepare him for this world. And then I don't also advocate uh, for him, but I also advocate for our special needs community. So that means, you know, uh, being available for meetings at the um, at the Ed Center with the special ed department and being that parent that they can call and say, hey, can you speak at the school board because we want to get this new facility for our kids mm. and we need a parent to go and, and speak from a parental perspective. So I'm that person. Or uh, being involved with the Playground Project and, and doing those countless hours of volunteer time, hours to so that we can help to uh, raise the money that we need to be able to get this new park that we just have recently opened and continue to build it out. So it's really more of a, um, I, I, I'm, I'm very service minded, I'm very, uh, I have a ministry of helps, it's just a natural thing for me to want to help. Mm -hmm. So it's actually a good combination of being able to help and then also, I, I also like to work. I can't go somewhere and not do something, so it's like, okay, I'm, so I'm like, okay, here, I'm, I'm, I'm going to volunteer and I sign up for all, you know, things, but all the, the end goal is to make things better for Caleb, to make things better for our community, to make things better, special needs community, and also for our city, you know, and everything. Yeah. I just can't sit back and not do anything. I have to. I have to do something to to make a difference. Yeah, it's just ingrained in me to be able to do that. You know, you you are probably, a, and I have a lot of friends on Facebook. <laughs> you are probably one of the most active per mm -hmm. people when it comes to taking advantage of things that the city has to offer. Mm -hmm. Like for example. We just went through, was it for Christmas that y'all went to the planetarium for South? Yes. And I said, yes. I didn't even know that they yes. did that. Yes. Uh, but you'll do stuff like that all mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, like when, when Caleb got to be chief for a day, mm -hmm. didn't know that they did that. Yes. You yes. know, it's, it's just so cool. And so, um, you know, it's one thing when somebody has to be a part of the city. Mm -hmm. You know, when I interview the mayor or the city yes. councilman or say, okay, yeah, you got to kind of do yes. that. And yes, you have a civic attitude. Yes, you want to do that. But there's a certain part of you mm -hmm. that kind of, it's mandatory. Right, right. When you're a person that's just volunteering, mm -hmm. it's, um, I, I, it, it requires a level of actually wanting to make the world a better place. Yeah. So one of the things that I wanted you to kind of talk about was, um, for people that are just normal, everyday people that are not wanting to run for city council right, and not wanting right. to be elected, how do you start getting involved? Yes. Like, what did you do? Well, you know, it's funny because um, I do a lot of volunteering, not just in our city, but, you know, Habitat, and um, mm. I, I love Habitat for Humanity and, and just different things like that and uh, feeding programs. And I found, I found as I volunteered that a lot of people really want to get involved, but they don't know how to get involved. And a lot of people are intimidated about getting involved because the thought of them going to even say for habitat and go do a build or something to go to this place there's nobody that they know and to do something that they've never done it's just it's too much for them so um, I guess for me I've, I've kind of worked past that point because I, I do that but I think that usually and that's why I like to post a lot of the things that I do like that because mm -hmm. not to brag but to help people to say oh my gosh 
Dr. Crowder went and did that. And then a lot of times they'll call me and say, hey, I want to go with you the next time. Right. And then they'll go with me. And then once they do it the first time, then they get past that fear. And the next thing you know that they're volunteering. So I think that it's just, you know, if you've got a friend like myself, somebody that does it regularly, that you can maybe do it with the first time mm -hmm. so that you can get past that to do it that way. Or, you know, they have different volunteer organizations that you can sign up with. Um, I, sorry, I don't have any off the top of my yeah, head. Yeah. But, um, you know, you can go and sign up for those. And a lot of times it's people that are just like them that have never volunteered before right. and just want to have a new experience. But I just encourage people find something, find something, you, you know, there's meals, there's all kinds of things. If you want to work with the elderly, mm -hmm. if you want to work with children, if you want to work with your hands and building, you know, there's tons and tons and tons of things yeah. to do. But I think we all have a responsibility to do something, not just to walk around, you know, just, just sucking up air, if you will, you know, but we all have a responsibility to, to do something. And yes, we're all busy. And maybe they don't have time to volunteer as much as I do and be as involved as I am, but there's still something, even if it's just one thing that you can commit to doing, to, and it'll make a difference. From my episode with Grand Prairie Police Chief Daniel Sesney. So what are you most excited about? Wow, that's a good question. My very first evaluation here uh, as a police officer Back then, we would ask officers, what are your three goals? And most of us back then would be say something like, um, learn the penal code better, or uh, I don't know, get on this unit or that unit. One of my very first goals was, well, my very first goal was become the police chief. Wow. At the time, that was incredibly ambitious, and I caught heck from everybody <laughs> that read that. But... I just knew that I wanted to lead this organization. Mm. Um, so I'm really excited about the opportunity. Now, having said that, it's really important to understand that the way we work here, I don't, while I'm the face of our organization, this is a team sport. Mm -hmm. And if you wear a gold badge in this building, that means you're a supervisor. Your job is to remove roadblocks from the crime fighters. Mm -hmm. And they know it. So uh, our philosophy is sort of an inverted uh, triangle, so to speak. You know, in a normal organization, you got the, the CEO at the top, mm -hmm. and then, you know, and work your way down. Mm -hmm. For us, uh, the bosses are at the bottom, and because we prioritize the work of our crime fighters because they're the ones that are making it safe for our citizens. Mm -hmm. So it, we are looking at everything, and it's exciting to be able to drill down and get rid of any red tape to help facilitate that mission. Mm. Our former chief was really good at that too, and I was on his command staff for mm -hmm. three years. So, so there's no drastic shift in, in uh, strategy. I'll, I'll just tell you now. Right. What we, it'd be crazy to do that because it's working so well. But having said that, being the new guy, it is exciting to have the opportunity to be a, the face of our department and continue to be a part of a leadership team that is, I, I'm just telling you we're the best police department in the country. Mm -hmm. I know that's ambitious. I, hear, I, I, I know <laughs> that my friends to the Northeast, South and West are going, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're the best, mm -hmm. we just are. And we, um, that's because our cops are bought in mm -hmm. to what's important and that's the folks 100 percent, 100 percent. i i talk to people all the time um officers all the time and they are 100 percent bought in they're excited 
you know, they're, they're really, really interested in doing something really great for the place where they live. And a lot of them have been here for a very long time. Um, I don't know how many officers graduated from high schools in Grand Prairie. Sure. A yeah, lot. <laughs> we, we've got a bunch. And you also see that very, very few officers, when they get hired here, leave until they retire. And our retention rate is off the charts. Yes. It's because they love being Grand Prairie police officers. I yes. mean, I'm just an, another example. Uh, I didn't realize how blessed I was to get hired here when I first got hired. I just wanted to be a cop, like a lot of the guys do. But you very quickly go from being a cop to being part of a family that we stand shoulder to shoulder when things are great, mm -hmm. but also when it's our darkest hour. And, you know, we, we recently went through that with the loss of Officer A.J. Castaneda. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we, we also lost Sergeant Greg Hunter and, and Officer Lyndon King. Mm -hmm. And our officers pull together and uh, we get to that spot because we're a family. From my episode with Grand Prairie YMCA Executive Director, Susanna Delgado-Gray. Well, it's, so it's, it's important, I think, as parents, so now we're getting into the parent topic, but sure, to let's go apologize. There. To oh. apologize. Don't even get me uh, Sometimes yes. as adults, we don't apologize. Yes. And I, I have to come to my boys sometimes and say, you know, I'm sorry. I, I lost my cool. Mm -hmm. Or, you know what, you're right. I, that, I was triggered by that, and I took your phone away, and that wasn't fair to you because mm. I didn't give you enough warnings. I have an expectation that I didn't communicate, and so now I'm punishing you by removing your technology. And I'm sorry about that. And to see a look in their eyes of like, wow, you see me as a human. You see me yes. as a person. Yes. I've gained more respect. We, my husband and I, have gained more respect from our boys in teaching them that vulnerability because when they make a mistake, they need to know that they need to own up to it, no matter how it is. And, and we have to yes. teach that as parents. Oh man, and especially with boys. Like um, I was watching a documentary, it was about, it's called The Mask We Live In, and it's about, it's, it's all kids, but boys especially, you have to give them the words to use yes. to be able to talk about what they're going through. And I, I was so fortunate I mean, the divorce was not a great thing in my life, but I was fortunate that I got the counseling out of it because I was able to, number one, understand how I project my own feelings onto my child, and number two, I was able to understand, just like what you said, my child is a human being first. She's God's child first before she's mine, yeah. but she is her own person with her own personality, her own feelings, her own individual likes, dislikes, mm -hmm. and <clears throat> she's not an extension of me. She is her own person, mm -hmm. and um, I'm her mother that's guiding her along this journey, but I'm not perfect either. And it, you know, being able to reflect as a parent and being able to say to your child, listen, this is what happened. Because you know what, the next time that that happens to them, they'll be able to understand what, why. And um, God, that's, that's just, that's yeah. tremendous. The, the, the power of an apology is very, yeah. very important. And, and that comes back to full circle when they enter the job force. Oh yes. And you know, in, in the business that we're in, it's customer service. I mean, we, mm -hmm. we work with volunteers, we work with members, we work with community people. And if we're not able to apologize and make right, mm -hmm. and, which is what we try to empower our team with, and, and many of them were like, well, so what do I do, Miss Susanna? I, I don't know. And I'm like, well, what does your heart tell you to do? 
my heart tells them to refund the thirty dollars that we mm. got. And I said, okay, well let's do that. They're like, but in their paperwork for that, in that way, and I said, when you're going to do the right thing, we find a way. Yeah. So if that's what you want to do, if that's what's going to make the customer happy, then refund the thirty dollars. Give them the discount. Help them enroll for that class. If you got to put your own phone out and help them navigate mm-hmm. that frustrating online system of setting up a login, then let's help them do that. Right. Because it's at the end of the day, it's I I tell my husband because then I come home and I pull out my laptop and I'm working, and he says, "Do you work at the office? Like you come home and you have work <laughs> all day?" And and I and I really started thinking about that. I'm like, God, I do work. I continue mm. to work after dinner and after checking in with the boys and all that. And I I realize that I do my heart work at the office because that's when you're building and talking and oh, relationships. Yeah. So my heart work happens during the day. And when I go home is when I do my brain work, is when I knock out the deadlines. I write the grant. I, you know, write the email, check all that. That's where mm-hmm. the brain work happens, where there aren't a lot of distractions because... When you're in a people industry, Mm -hmm. you have to take time to love and nurture people. From my episode with SGPHS alum, Lana Kluge. Kind of talking about the alumni, you know, we're we're forming the South Huron Prairie High School Alumni Association. And I've said Mm -hmm. this before, I have no clue why we don't have one already. But but we're forming that. And as someone that... um, helped organize your 20th reunion why do you feel like it's important for people to still go to reunions and be a part of all these things you know after they graduate from their high school well I think it's super important I mean we we grew up with these people and you know we did life with them for all these years and I think it's important to stay connected and um I think we were very lucky to grow up in um, a city and a school that is so diverse that has made the people that we are today. Um, You know, I know everybody says says this about their class, but I truly believe that, you know, we have one of the best classes and, you know, we, we all come from backgrounds, different backgrounds, different social statuses, different religions and ethnicities. But when we all come together under one room, we're all, we're all equals and we're all friends and, um, we truly care about each other. And I think it's important to, to stay connected with your alumni. I, I agree. And like one of the things, cause I, I planned my 20th reunion as well. Mm-hmm. Cause I, I graduated 98 mm-hmm. and, um, I would agree that yes, during our time together at, at, in our high school, we, we had the best, we, we had a great experience growing, you know, in high school. Absolutely. But, yeah. Um, <clears throat> what I told a lot of people to come and, and everybody's attitude is, I don't, I, I'm the people that I'm friends with or that I was friends with back then. I'm friends with now. I don't mm-hmm. see everybody else. And I always want to remind people that we're not 18 years old anymore. Like we're yes. in our thirties and forties mm-hmm. now. And especially when it's your 20th reunion mm-hmm. and there's a great number of number of people that you might not have ever had the privilege to know that now you're in a totally different phase of life. And now you yep. can be friends on a different level. So, um, did you find it hard to organize y'all's reunion at all? Um, it, it comes, every event comes with its challenges, but luckily we had the most incredible committee of seven people that 
each pulled their strengths and their weight um, to make it the best reunion that we could. And we all worked so well together. And we were truly sad when it was over because we just, we had so much fun putting it together. Yeah, it really, we had a great time too. So what are, one of the things I'm noticing as kind of starting this alumni association, and since we have Grand Prairie listeners that Mm -hmm. now we have four different, no, we have more than that. We have the two main high schools, uh, Fine Arts Academy, Dubisky. We have, I think the girls um, and boys school both just had graduating classes. So now we have several schools that are producing graduates from mm-hmm. Curry. And one of the things that I want for these kids to know when they're graduating is that the second you graduate, you're an alumni and right. you get to be a part of that with your school. And, um, and so it's just, it's the attitude of, of staying connected and being a part of what was going on. But one of the things that I find that people are asking me tons of is, how do you even start planning something like that? And where do you, like, what do we even do? And so I know that there's some of us that have an event planning type mentality that we can Mm -hmm. just kind of start and not, you know, with no ideas, Mm -hmm. but like, what were some of the ways that you got your reunion started and how did y'all start making the plans for it? Well, um, we came together um, and met about a year in advance and um, event planning is kind of in my blood because I've done it for, um, 16 years, um, prior to being a, a, a travel agent. And I still do event planning. I, um, work with my event central who is also owned by a Grand Prairie alumni. Um, really Tina love y'all might know her. Um, oh, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's kind of comes naturally to me. And, um, uh, so we met and we went over some ideas for venues and, we kind of got a head count from our 10 year reunion and kind of um, based our interest off of who might want to come to our 20 to put together a rough budget. And that's the scariest part is putting together a budget because you have no idea how many people are actually going to come. And mm-hmm. um, Amen, so, sister. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's, hard. it's so yeah. scary. And, you know, we very we emphasize emphasized so much to our class how important it was to um, help us out by purchasing tickets as early as possible so that we could pay our deposits and, um, get a rough estimate of if we need to back off the contract a little bit, or if we can increase it and make it more awesome. So it's just, it's, there's just so much that goes into it that I don't think people fully understand. Mm -hmm. And, um, until the night of when they see it all and, um, And I, I, you know, I saw the pictures from yours as well. And, you know, it's, it's amazing how it comes together and, and totally. it's a hundred percent worth it at the end of the day. From my episode with the tickets, Steve Pryor. No, I worked with um, a school board member prior to knowing you where she would help me do um, like estate sales. And um, there would be things that happen. Like, I don't know if, if, you know, a teacher passed away or something like that, where it was kind of like a, um, something that would just pop up. She'd be on the phone all day long. And I, it kind of gave me insight into what y'all's life is like whenever you are an elected official. And I think school board, it's cause I've known city council members and it's not like that for them nearly as much as it's like that for, for people that are on school board. Um, which is one of the reasons why, you know, when people say, well, somebody just needs to run against him. I'm like, do you want to do it? Because it's not the easiest thing to do. Well, I'll, I'll tell you where I think the real difference between city council and school board comes mm-hmm. in. 
city council, for the most part, you're dealing with, not the right word, but corporate policies. Mm -hmm. You're you're talking about zoning issues. Mm -hmm. You're talking about code enforcement. You're talking about police and how the police department works and, you know, is it going to be community policing? Is it going to be, you know, are we going to try and build trust or are we going to go in and guns blazing, you know, and, and it's more kind of high level, you know, policy based right. stuff. Mm -hmm. When it gets to the school board, it's my child right. has an issue with this teacher. Mm -hmm. My child, you know, isn't, is failing. My child got suspended and I don't think it's fair. My, mm -hmm. you know. So much of it is, you know, it involves that sentence, my child. Right. And that's where, you know, that's where the difference is. It's very personal. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, Dr. Hall and I would kind of go back and forth on, on a, a, a couple of different things. But one of the things is that, you know, hey, this parent reached out to me. She says she's reached out to the administration, you know, and hadn't heard back. And it was like, you know, well... You know, and we, we talk about, like, customer service response times. And it was like, okay, for that principal calling, you know, Mr. Pryor back might be, uh, you know, one of ten parents that they need to call back and mm -hmm. that they'll get to and they're out, of, they're, out of the off, they're out of the school this day for a meeting and they've got, you know, this conference that day. They might take a couple of days to get back to somebody. Mm -hmm. Well, that person... That's consuming their life at that right, point. Right, exactly. And it's like, I understand that, you know, and we had this problem at, at, we're at Reagan. Myself and another parent both called the principal about the same time for a similar issue. I got a call back that day. They heard back two days later. Oh, yeah. And mm -hmm. it was like, okay, is, is he calling me back because he knows I'm on the school board, mm -hmm. but he's calling my friend back two days later because... He knows that he can, you know, he didn't think that was as important a phone call. It was both about the same basic thing. We both wanted, you know, some information. Right. I got it a lot quicker. And it's just like, okay, this, at that moment, this guy's question, that was consuming his life. He needed to know this before he could right. whatever. Right. And not getting it drives people crazy. Yeah, and it's not it's not just my child, it's also my money. And, you know, that's that's a big part of it. You know, I know that city council controls certain parts of property taxes and stuff, but I mean, definitely school board is responsible. I mean, when it comes to people's money, the amount of money they pay in their mortgage payment, you know, how it affects their life and then a child, it is it's a lot more personal. And, you know, it's it's when I saw how much she'd be on the phone and then the other thing too is i've always been fortunate enough to have people that i've had relationships with like like friendships with like you and other people where i'm like if they're talking to me for this long how many other people are they talking to in their day for this long of and having conversations all the time and it's it's a huge sacrifice to to do that and to be an elected official um you know even and even on a city level so like i we don't but I, I'll tell you, it's, you know, there, there are a lot of times where, okay, the headache, the hassle, the, you know, mm -hmm. the pain in the neck factor is like, what am I doing this for? Right. And then every May, I'm up on stage at Verizon, mm. 
and I'm seeing kids come across the stage and seeing the, you know, the sheer joy on their face of, oh my God, I actually made it. Uh, you know, I, I graduated. Because sometimes, you know, some of them, you, you know they're going to graduate. You know, you know those, mm. you know, that top 10%, they, they don't have any issues. But sometimes those kids from Crosswinds, that, the, you know, that right. they're the ones that, oh man, I, you know, I managed to gut through it, you know, with a little help and a lot of tutoring. I, you know, I managed to get my high school diploma and just, you know, the look of joy, right. the look of exhilaration that they're a high school graduate. It's, you know, it, it makes the... All the other you know, stuff easier it, to It makes spare. those phone calls easier to take when you kind of have that balance of people, I love this school, I love my... Right. I love this teacher, I love, you know, this program. From an episode with retired Parks and Recreation Director Rick Harold. The thing about it is, is this town has had a lot of, mo like, a lot of um, uh, momentum in the Parks and Rec Department for a long time. I mean, it's it's been growing and growing and growing. And so to kind of uh, retire at that point, but you still live here. You still live in town. I sure do. Yep, and so do you still well, get, and you get to take advantage of the facilities that you worked so hard to yeah. build. <laughs> well, I'm glad, you, I'm glad you brought that up because I want to give some advice. Okay. Because I think this can happen in life. And I will gladly listen. I was in no way wanting to retire when I retired. Mm -hmm. No way. I expected to be late 60s to retire. But I did something that I want to tell people to do to consider, and that is not falling too much in love in what your profession is. Because I was not a f user of facilities. I was a part of a team who created facilities. And with that, uh, you know, my health was poor. My weight was way too much. Mm -hmm. And I kept playing personal toll from, because I loved it. Yeah. I didn't mind it was seven days a week. I didn't mind it was evenings. I just loved it. But I loved it a little too much from that standpoint, mm. from a holistic life standpoint. So I've given a lot, I gave a lot of stuff up for that. That's why J-Lo at the Super Bowl was telling her, I saw a little thing, I'd heard Alex Rodriguez. <laughs> and J-Lo goes, well, it's our act too. And I said, oh, I like that. I like that. <laughs> that doesn't mean I'm going to go into some career doing something, but it just means that changing those things. So. Your dad and I've never played golf before because my knees have been shot for years. Mm. Now, I love to tell you my knees got shot playing football or playing baseball <laughs> or playing basketball, which I really loved. They didn't. They got uh, wore out from carrying another 100 pounds I shouldn't have been carrying. Mm. So uh, it's kind of a dichotomy. And the one person who's my professional uh, mentor, if you will, is Dr. John Crompton at Texas A&M University. He is the world's leading expert on parks and recreation. Mm. And we became friends a long time ago. Here I'm a North Texas kid and he's an Aggie. But uh, uh, he had heard me do a presentation. He said, Rick, that was a wonderful presentation. But one thing he, I want to tell you, he says, you're an embarrassed of the profession. Mm. And a lot of people would never, ever tell you that. But it, 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 it stuck with me. We're great friends today. 
crossing our fingers, I'll be teaching at A&M come fall of 2020. Wow. So uh, North Texas has kind of changed their their thing to professional sports management, which I think is a mistake, but I don't think they care. They think it's a mistake. <laughs> but uh, uh, anyway, so, uh, you know, make sure you have a holistic lifestyle to do all the things. So I love to go out and say, you know, one of the great things that I don't think people do is show outcomes. And, and uh, I think us, us being the, the staff in the park board, we made a concentrated effort to show legitimate uh, documented outcomes. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, we have a series of films I'm really, really proud of. And, and one of those is the Summit Success Stories. Because we knew that the summit was going to touch lives. We didn't know how many lives in many different areas. It's just not physically, it's emotionally and psychologically, it's, it's even spiritually. Uh, and and uh, so we have those people on tape, what it's done to them. And uh, uh, that's, what, uh, that's why I'm so pumped about the profession and what we can do and play a role in the town. From my episode with Bonnie Cockrum with the Grand Prairie Historical Organization. Digitizing documents, that's not what that is. No. Because if you've ever read a newspaper that was copied on a photocopier, there are words missing. You can't read all the way through. If someone didn't lay them down flat, there's a crease in the middle. So digitizing documents is, is a professional process for a reason because you have to get every single part of that document into the detail. And when you have the right lighting and the right camera equipment, you can do that kind of stuff. The other thing too is, I want you at home as a project to, to go try to take a picture of a pamphlet. Just find a pamphlet in your house. Find something that has 10 pieces of paper on it. And I want you to take a picture of each one of those pages and see how long it takes you to get it correct. And understand how long it takes to digitize documents correctly. And when you have the right setup, it certainly makes it easier. But there's, when there's only one person doing it, it can be a very painstaking process. Mm -hmm. So when she says she needs more people to help, that's the kind of stuff, it's, it's very tedious, but it is so important. And it is so important to do it the correct way with the correct equipment, mm -hmm. because that's how historical documents get done properly. I just wanted to say that. Thank you. <laughs> yes, um, I'll tell you the tediousness of one thing that was so amazing. This was a project by one of our members, Larry Wheat, that he took on. And, and, and remembering that we have volunteers come in and they're different volunteers. And so people just rotate. For instance, I would come in and whatever was ready to do, whether it was a file folder of documents or a scrapbook from some organization, the, that's what I would do that day. It was different every time. But we had a special area that was, Larry's area, and he was digitizing the Deckman diary. Now, Alexander McCray Deckman, some of your I did an episode on it, uh-huh, okay, yeah, yeah. They may or may not know, uh, bought the first plot of land, and his little town was named Deckman, and that's right down in the middle of Grand Prairie, where that 239 and a half acres was. This handwritten diary was yellowed, old, 
and crumbling. Mm -hmm. There were pieces loose. Now, granted, it was in pretty good shape considering the age, mm -hmm. which was over 100 years. Um, roughly, I can't remember exact date it was written, but anyway, Larry took tweezers and moved little bits of paper back together. Now, we don't use scotch tape, and we don't glue. We don't like post-it notes, and we don't like ballpoint pens because they damage important mm. documents. So mm -hmm. when we digitize, if we have to make notes, it's with a pencil or it's on a sheet of paper that gets digitized along with the item. Uh, and so anyway, Larry painstakingly digitized every page and some of the words had been distorted from age, mm -hmm. faded a little. Um, there were handwritten notes in the margin uh, from a, a descendant and so, uh, he he worked on this a very long time. Wow. Thankfully, not all of our documents are like that. But then I say, I wish we had more documents like right, that. Right, right. Because that's what we're here for. Right. So now we have the Deckman Diary digitized that can be looked at and read so much more easily on a screen. Right. And it's preserved. From an episode with Texas Roadhouse owner, Mike Medrano. The, the trek to get this guy was uh, about four years. It took about four years to actually, you know, from, from the nut mm -hmm. to the tree, it was really about four years. Well, so one of the things I want to go back to is <clears throat> because, first of all, Texas Roadhouse was one of the first, one of the first real restaurants that Grand Prairie had when it was opened back in 1998. Mm -hmm. So we had a Chili's in 1996 and nice. that was the big time we thought we had hit the big time so when roadhouse came there was really nothing over here i mean over at great southwest and i-20 we had a yep. gas station i think in a mcdonald's but yep. there wasn't any of this stuff no. so when they came over it was really exciting well it was also the not the first restaurant in texas texas roadhouse in texas right i mean it was not the first texas roadhouse even though it was the first roadhouse in texas right so it was like 26 mm. right so when and, and Texas Roadhouse started in malls, like some of the first ones were actually in in a mall. So when y'all, when we or when they built the Grand Prairie location, after everything progressed and you we realized the kind of people that come in, the groups, the sizes, how they kind of sit and all that stuff. There's there were some changes that were made to the to the restaurants after that. Right. And so y'all have adapted as much as you can in that restaurant. Uh, because when we were open, you couldn't accommodate large parties hardly at all. Right. There was hardly any waiting space. There was no to-go area because that wasn't even a thing at the time, really. Right. Um, and so over time, y'all have tried to adapt it. But since the moment that restaurant opened, the parking has been a problem mm -hmm. ever since the day we opened that store because this place was as busy as could be. And so I knew I, when I heard that y'all were getting a new restaurant, I was so excited because yeah. you need one. Right. This restaurant is still so crazy busy. So... You started four years ago, and, and so did Roadhouse, did you present the idea and then Roadhouse had to agree? How did that work? Yeah, well, you know, the thing is, is that uh, the old location was a leasehold, okay? Mm. We didn't own the property. We owned the building, but we didn't own the property. So if oh. you own the building, don't own the property, you don't own much of nothing except right. for what's inside. Right. Well, here, we bought the property. Oh, so great. we own the property, we own the building, this is our guy, you know? So, you know, when I say this is my restaurant, truly, this is my restaurant. Over there, this was my building. Right. Over here, 
this is my this is my house. Mm -hmm. You know, this is our house. This is Texas Roadhouse's house. You know, we'll know the truth. This is Grand Prairie's house. Mm -hmm. You know, <coughs> because honestly, without the you know the the backing and support of you know not only the citizens of, of Grand Prairie mm -hmm. but also the city leadership. You know, Absolutely. I, I want to talk about that a little bit later on. You know, but uh, you know. Over there, like you mentioned, you know, the parking was all, always an issue. Mm -hmm. You know, large party is always an issue. You know, over here, you know, people are always telling me, you know, Mike, being that busy is a great problem to have, but it's still a problem. You know, yeah. so being over <coughs> here, we have 80 more parking spaces. You know, which is you know, really close to a hundred. But mm -hmm. you know what? Last night we were already. You know, people are like rolling around the parking of lot. Course. You know, and, and I hate to say that because people are going, oh well, you know, then I just won't go. But you know, I mean, you. My opinion is we could have an additional 200 parking spaces and we'd still fill it up, mm -hmm. you know? And, uh, you know, we went on a little bit of a wait last night, even though the weather was terrible. Yeah. You know, that's the show of support from on a Wednesday. the city of Grand Prairie. <laughs> yeah, on a Wednesday. <laughs> Just beat the dog stuffings out of every other restaurant, you know, in our market mm -hmm. because everybody else was down because of the weather. Mm -hmm. You know, last night we were 29% up in sales from last year. Wow. Yeah, and that's with the weather the way it was. Yeah. Oh wow, that's amazing. Yeah, you know, but uh, you know, I mean, like you said, you know, we 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 had to do this. You know, it has been a four-year journey. You know, how it started was, you know, really just talking to Jerry. Um, you know, about man, we we got to go, we got to go. You know, and um, he asked something about you know, the 161 thing, because 161 at that point in time wasn't complete. And, mm -hmm. you know, they, they had talked about the, the Cedar le leadership, the economic development people had, had talked about, you know, hey, Mike moved to, to 161, but I'm, I'm real loyal, you know, you know me. I mean, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm loyal to, to the end and I was loyal to this part of town and mm -hmm. I was loyal to this street and I was mm -hmm. loyal to my partners, the, you know, restaurants and businesses around me, mm -hmm. you know, so I'm, <coughs> like, I'm not going anywhere. You know, this this is home. You know, I want that spot down there. And I remember telling Jerry and, and driving with him and going, "This is the spot that I want." You know, and we're within a hundred yards of what you know I said I wanted. Right. You know, and uh, <clears throat> you know, so I showed Jerry, and Jerry went to real estate, and real estate's like, you know, yeah, we, you know, well, who's the owner? Who knew? I didn't know. <laughs> you know, so I got them in touch with. Um, I don't remember. Who the uh, economic development Bob Bob O'Neill was the uh, economic development guy at the time, and he gave them the name and whatever, and the price was too high and all the stuff, and kind of almost a year lapsed, and I remember talking to uh, Steve Dye, the mm -hmm. ex-police chief, mm -hmm. Steve Dye, and uh, telling him, you know, yeah, we're we're looking to move, you know, and at that time we were looking at uh, a property in in Arlington off of 30 and I told him this you know and he's like oh you can't leave the city you know oh Mike you can't leave the city and I, mm -hmm. I remember the look on his face and I remember the sincerity in his voice can't leave <coughs> the city and I'm like but we're landlocked man you know and he's like what could keep you in the city Steve Dye police chief you know and I'm like we're looking at a spot over there kind of it's too high I said if you can get them to kind of come down on their price you know and he's like let me see what I can do because the interesting part about it is like this place th this area exploded and it and it built all the way up into what was that hotel I think it's that hotel or that mm -hmm. care now 
and then that's it for like years. Long I mean, time. this land has been sitting here for yeah. years yeah. with nobody doing anything with it. So yeah, yeah. You know, I remember when when Sarah Jane, you know, stopped at Beto's. Yeah. You know, Albert and the Sanchez family's, you know, yes. restaurant, and you know, for the longest time. You yes. Know? And uh, you know, I remember we would park in the field. Yep. Do you remember that? Oh yeah. yeah. Even before Beto's was there, I mean Mother's Day, Father's Day, oh, parking, yes. everybody parks in the field. Yeah. You know. Actually, when they built Beto's, I remember thinking, "Where's everybody going to park now?" Because <laughs> we were trying to park at Taco Bueno. They weren't having that. Oh, they yeah. They hated yeah. it with good reason. I mean, obviously. Yeah, it's their property. You, you, know? Mean, you know. And so then we're parking on the street. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's crazy. So, so Chief died. That's crazy that he. Yeah. Okay. You talk about parking in the street. Well, then once they expanded uh, Sarah Jane Parkway. We couldn't park in the street anymore, mm. so we're like, "Oh my God, what are we going to do?" You I totally know? forgot that dead end right there. So I remember, you know, sending an email. I think it was to the police chief or you know, uh, Steve Dye, and or mm. maybe I called him. I don't really remember. And I'm like, "Hey, man, I I need this. You know, I, I need to be able to park in my street." You know, and and they made I don't remember what it's called. It's some kind of exception where mm -hmm. you know on those days. They would cover the no parking sign so we could park in the street. Yeah. You know, I mean, come on, man. What city does that? From an episode with Beto's owner, Albert Sanchez. There are pros and cons to, to every pathway that you take. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's there's a there's a pro for the kind of wing it. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> Carefree 19 year old young Albert. Um, but in the in the long haul, the structure, the systems, the planning, the feasibility studies, in the long run, that's going to pay tenfold in in, in benefits than the winging it. Mm -hmm. So I look back, and my dad would always tell me we were running and gunning, and the cells were there. I mean, the cells were there, and you know, I'm 24, 25 at the time. Um, and my dad would bring something up to me, like, this is not right. You know, this is not good at the store. And I would just say, hey, and I would throw out a number. And it was a big number. And to me, that was the answer, you know? Sales mm -hmm. don't lie. And you, you say it out of arrogance. You say it out of cockiness. You say it out of a lack of experience. And probably the biggest thing, you say it out of immaturity. Mm. You know, that sales don't lie. Um, they don't lie, but what you come to find out really fast is they will tell the truth. Mm-hmm. So all the things that you're doing wrong might not show up right then and there. Right. But the guests that you had on a weekly basis might have had a bad experience, and now it's every once every two weeks. Right. And then you mess up on them again. Okay, maybe once every six weeks. Then give me one more chance. You mess up again, you'll never see them again. Right. And I feel like I sacrificed what built us for revenue, for growth. Mm. You, know, you see it all the time. You hear about it. I mean, you don't need to be a finance major to hear about whatever store crumbled under their own success. Right. Because and it just, it's the same thing. Um, and I'm not saying we're crumbling, but we grew too fast without right. the infrastructure. Right. Especially without, there was no cloud-based systems. I mean, there, we didn't even have plastic gift cards at the time. This is this is how long ago. Mm -hmm. We were still doing numbered paper gift certificates. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have the infrastructure in place yep. to have checks and balances, 
it's a lot easier now. Everything's cloud-based, everything's digital. You can have security cameras, you can have Google Drive, you got POS. Mm -hmm. But back then you didn't have that. That wasn't, you needed people literally, you needed an audit to go and like, hey, and I was so cheap and I thought I was 20 foot tall. Well, why do I need to spend X amount of money on a GM? I'll be GM. Right, right. You do need a GM. Yes. You do need a area supervisor. But when you're like, no, I can do it. No, you can't. From my episode with Mike Gear, manager of the Aransas County Airport in Rockport, Texas. Is so going back to June of 17 and we all got together in, as a county and as a as a local area really uh, and decided how we would handle a hurricane if it happened. We just kind of thought this is we're never going to need it, you know, it's going to be a one in a million shot if we ever get a hurricane. And then all of a sudden you have a, a, a when was the last time you'd depression. had one? I think it was in the oh, 70s. Okay, gotcha. Uh, the last time they'd had Celia or something, I think, down here, or Camille, Carla. Anyway, uh, you know, there hadn't been anything knocked down by a hurricane here in right, a lot of years. Right. In fact, I think the last hurricane that affected this area actually hit Corpus, and Rockport was on the high water side, so there was some gotcha. flooding. And then 100 years ago, in 1919, uh, there was a, a, a leveling hurricane that came through here and, and swacked Rockport pretty good and. uh and the people, there are still a few buildings that are around that were around then uh, that, that are in some old photographs and stuff. And you can see everything around them is underwater. So that was, it, we would have been in a lot worse shape if we would have been on the high water side of this hurricane. Fortunately, we were just on the high wind mm. side. Uh, but, but nevertheless, so we, we started in, in June and then everybody just kind of put their uh, plans on the back burner. Mm. And then all of a sudden we had the tropical depression that was moving across the Yucatan and we started perking up and paying attention and National Weather Service started getting involved. We have a guy in Corpus that's a hurricane expert and uh, the county defers to him for everything as far as warnings and evacuation orders and emergency declarations and everything. So <clears throat> he, uh, he became a big player at that time. And I think the hurricane hit on a Friday and uh, that was like Monday or Tuesday that we started watching this depression. Mm. Uh, and I think that was actually still out in the Atlantic at that time. And some of the models were showing that it could come into the Gulf. Well, then we get in now fast forward to Wednesday. I'm going to meetings probably three times a day at this point. We're, we're having uh, briefings from the national weather service on what to expect and how it could be. And now they're starting to kind of put a cone of uncertainty over, you know, basically from Port Mansfield, uh, which is at the tip of Texas, all the way up to Galveston. And then, uh, so and, and at that time, Harvey had just come across and was in the Gulf and was now a tropical depression on its way to becoming a tropical mm. storm. I don't know timelines a lot from there because everything runs together. Uh, but I'll tell you this. We know now that it went from a tropical depression to a hurricane in 40 hours. So th this is why this is why that number uh, is important, because my plan was a 72 hour ah. So I had a 72-hour plan for a hurricane in the Gulf, not just a tropical depression that came across the Yucatan, but a hurricane coming into the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, that was kind of what the standard was. You make a 72-hour plan. Well, Mike Tyson said one time about one of his opponents, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Right. So we got punched right in the mouth. So our plan kind of was not really a plan at all. It wasn't anything that I was living by anymore. We were just doing what we could to survive. So it was a lot of things. There were a lot of things that were mitigating factors in, 
uh, I think, in uh, how 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 we took the hurricane whenever it happened. We probably could have been readier for it, but uh, but in reality, you know, you just you, you just have to react. And so we, I had in my list of things that we were going to do. Just I'll give you a quick example. Uh, we we have hurricane uh, plexiglass that we were going to put on the, uh, the airport terminal building. And we did, we put it on the airport terminal building all the way around. So the way this plexiglass goes, goes on, it's corrugated, but you can see through it. So it looks kind of like sheet metal, but it's, it's clear plastic. And, uh, it, we have a lot of windows on the terminal. And so you take a, you take a panel of it. It's about four foot or, well, I guess it's about three foot wide and, and however tall the window is they're custom cut. And then you put it up onto the window and then there's these studs that are on channels at the top and the bottom of the window. And you just line the holes up with the panel over those studs, which is basically just a screw. And then you put all of the, the, the screws through the holes on the panel and then you tighten everything down with wing nuts. And uh, under ideal conditions, it's probably not that difficult. I had never done it. Mm. Um, I didn't even simulate it, but I just I gave it I I. I, I gave it a unit of work that I thought it was going to represent um, on my plan. And so I thought this is going to take one guy oh, about four hours mm-hmm. to do the whole building, you know, and it ended up taking two guys two days oh, my gosh. to do it. And so we, uh, I, my budget for time was blown out of the water with that. So what did that cost us? Well, it cost us having uh, bodies that could go around the airport and double check hangar doors, uh, double check uh, locks and cane bolts and things like that, that, you know, that you really uh, could help shore up some of these buildings to, to, to stow loose items, to figure out a way to anchor portable buildings mm-hmm. and equipment and things like that. So we're already kind of behind the gun. And I had two people that evacuated, two of my crew evacuated, and I wasn't planning on that. Mm. They weren't required to stay, but I'd had a verbal commitment from them that they would, and then they left. Yeah. Uh, not saying anything bad about them. Everybody has the right to do what they want. I could have left, uh, but uh, I, cho- I chose to stay. But And that was a decision I made with my wife and my mm-hmm. family. But the, but the, thing about, uh, the thing about running out of time, is you know that was never more evident than the next morning when I woke up and there was basically nothing left. Everything was gone, and and I had a few huge uh, feeling of guilt for a long time that there was I should have done more. I should have tried more, planned better, and worked harder. And I probably could have secured some doors because you know I mean you're hearing now from engineers and people that are coming in and looking at your destruction. Well, you know the wind obviously breached this door, and when the door breached, you lost the whole building. Uh, so you know, what if I had checked that door and made sure that the cane bolts were down or the, or the chains were locked or something, you know, and I didn't get a chance to do that. So, mm. uh, you know, Tex- Texas uh, Department of Transportation Aviation Division asked me to, to give a lessons learned and best practices presentation at one of the conferences that followed the hurricane. And I did. And, uh, uh, you know, going on what information I had at the time, I kind of basically told you told them what I just told you what I know now is uh, something completely different and I don't feel so bad about things anymore I think a lot of the buildings that we had here were not going to sustain 100 and you know 30 or 40 miles an hour for as many hours right did right the hurricane sat on us for 13 hours we had 13 hours of hurricane force winds we had 24 hours of tropical storm force wind so it's just like any other anything else that's made out of metal or mortar or, or, or brick or stick you, you you wobble it back and forth enough and it's going to break loose right right 
And I think that's kind of what happened. And I'm not saying that, you know, we did, we had inferior structures here. They could have been built to, you know, 120, 130 miles an hour, but uh, you know, back and forth over time is going to wear something out. It's going to fall down. So I don't feel as bad as I did uh, back then. I feel very fortunate to survive it. Um, And, and, and I probably wouldn't ever stay for another major hurricane again. From my episode with GPS alum, Robin Brown. Uh, staying on on the World War II thing, everybody goes off to war. Uh-huh. My mother morphs from being the funeral home secretary to making ambulance calls, and she oh. didn't she didn't sign up for that, but she gets pressed into service because not all the men, but a lot. Mm-hmm. So my mother, my mother and Mrs. Turner, they would make ambulance calls, and my mother got pulled into duty. Very, see, this is making me whole, want to do a whole nother women part of women like, of Grand Prairie. Women of Grand Prairie, because we know about Miss Ruthie, but there's a lot of other women that had really. It, well, listen, history. Ruthie Jackson, a walking uh, icon of Grand Prairie, uh, I, I'll share this with you. Mrs. Turner, the first female embalmer, mm-hmm. she had a younger sister, Gertie Robertson Couch. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so. Gertie was a civic-minded person, and Mm -hmm. she married Earl J. Couch in 1920. There was no, you're going to like this, I think. There was no library in Mm -hmm. Grand Prairie. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Turner's sister, Mrs. Couch, another sister of my grandfather, she would get on the inner urban with a friend of hers. They would take empty suitcases to the Grand Prairie. This may be discussed at the Women's Club of Grand Prairie. They would take empty suitcases to the Central Dallas Library, check out books, bring the books back in suitcases to the lean-to shack that was Grand Prairie City Hall in the 1920s. And people learned through word of mouth, no cell phones, <laughs> that they could come to the little city hall, which was where Leedy's insurance building was, and they could rent out books. Wow. And so Gertie Couch and this other lady were literally creating the Grand Prairie Library System. Mm. The books would be read, they would load them up in the suitcases, take the interurban back to downtown Dallas, Check them back in, check out more books, bring more. That's how Grand Prairie's library system began. And when the library celebrated their 100th anniversary, Gertie Couch was still alive. Now, I'm talking about Mrs. Turner's younger sister. Mm -hmm. Gertie Couch lived to be 105 and a half years old. She was 56 when I was born, and she's still alive when I'm 50. And she died in 2004, and my 15-year-old son was a pallbearer at her funeral. Wow. But anyway, literally she founded the Grand Prairie Library System, and on the 100th anniversary of Grand Prairie's library system, Mm -hmm. they honored her. She was still alive, and she was part of the ceremony. So now I've dragged Minnie V. Turner's baby sister into this because that was significant. Absolutely. She also founded the Grand Prairie Study Club. Okay. Which was a women's organization. There was another club that kept coming up in the newspaper, and I can't remember what it was, but I've always... Maybe I'll think of it, but um, there's, there's organizations that we don't have anymore. 
a lot of organizations oh. that used to be, but we don't have anymore. But this one was something that I was like, what is that? What do they do? But I'll, I'll have to think of it. Well, Maybe your mother could help you with Deb, does the Grand Prairie Study Club still exist? No. Okay. No. When she founded that, now see, the Women's Club of Grand Prairie didn't come into existence until 1968. Mm -hmm. Before that, it was the Grand Prairie Study Club, and it was women who would come together, mm -hmm. determined to better their community. Well, your mother should have been in that generation because mm -hmm. these women were very independent mm -hmm. women, mm -hmm. and they weren't content to stay in the home. And they they did things like found the library. They did things, mm -hmm. and uh, she, they had their own sec chapter of the Chamber of Commerce, and they had all that. You know, they okay. were women okay. were definitely a big part of the history of this town. Rightfully so. And I don't know if that's if that's typical, or if it was atypical for the time. But oh no, well, but I looked at I looked at Gertie Couch as. Uh, ahead of her time as mm -hmm. far as if something needed to be done, she didn't go ask a man's permission. Mm -hmm. She just did it.